Hi, everybody. Welcome back to virology. This is lecture number seven. We're going to talk about transcription and RNA processing. And the order is kind of interesting. You know, last time we talked about RNA-dependent RNA synthesis. You know, for RNA viruses, the synthesis of genomes and mRNAs. And you would think we would go to DNA viruses, but there is a reason we do transcription first. And you will learn that today. So here is our Baltimore scheme, uh, our beloved Baltimore scheme uh, with mRNA at the center. And transcription is a very specific process. It is the synthesis of mRNA from double-stranded DNA. That's the big red arrow. Many people misuse that word, uh, including many of my fine colleagues. And um, they use it, for example, to describe the synthesis of mRNA from RNA virus genomes. But that's not how the term was originally defined, transcription. Of course, it was originally defined as someone writing something, right? <laughs> so it's all, it's all messed up anyway. But I like to define it as mRNA from DNA. So that's what I mean. If you're talking about an RNA virus, it's mRNA synthesis. And so today we're going to talk about that process. And we will talk about it for these uh, viruses shown in red, adenovirus, class one, double-stranded DNA viruses. Much of what we discuss will apply to uh, hepatitis B virus, the gap DNA viruses. Uh, we won't talk much about specific hep B processes. We'll talk about that in reverse transcription. Then single-stranded DNA viruses, of course. You know, the go going from single-strand or from gapped to Fully double-stranded DNA is the topic of next, uh, is Monday's lecture. But today we're going to talk about the process of transcription. And finally, the retroviruses, of course, they're plus-stranded RNA, but they make a DNA copy of their RNA, which then is integrated into the cell genome, right? Uh, th that is actually where transcription of those genomes occurs. Uh, so it's done by cellular processes. And so those are the viruses that will do this. The RNA viruses, class four and five and three, we talked about last time. They're not going to have any role in today's discussion. Now, this is, an inc this is one of these important uh, factoids that I, you need to remember. You know, sort of like, you know, double-stranded DNA is the only uh, DNA that, you can make messenger RNA from. In cells infected with DNA viruses, you need at least one protein and often many proteins to get DNA replication, right? A DNA virus comes in a cell, eventually it's got to make more genomes. So it has to do DNA replication. But no virus can do that without making at least one protein. So what do you have to do to make one protein? You have to make messenger RNA. So the first biosynthetic event that happens in a cell infected with the DNA virus is going to be transcription. And that's why we do this today before DNA synthesis, because it has to happen first. However, not all DNA templates are ready for transcription. I, I alluded to that in the previous slide. Uh, some are. Now this one, this is a polyomavirus particle and a polyomavirus called SV40, uh, is going to be our model for talking about transcription and also DNA replication and also transformation and oncogenesis later on. But here's the particle. 
It's, it's one of those larger ones. So it has uh, hexamers and pentamers. Uh, and in it is a double-stranded DNA. Uh, here it is on all the way on the right. It's a circular double-stranded DNA. All right, covalently closed circular DNA, not linear. And uh, this is actually packaged in the particle, wrapped around nucleosomes, right? They're mini chromosomes, DNA and histones. And this is very unusual for viruses. Most virus particles do not have what we call chromatinized DNA. That is DNA wrapped around histones. Uh, you can see in the particle there, and also here's a, a blow up. The histone proteins are in the middle, and the DNA is wrapped around it. And this is important because if the DNA is wrapped around too tightly, you can't get transcription. So the, there's a lot of gene regulation at the level of tightening or loosening up these uh, the DNA is wrapped around histones. But polyomaviruses uh, enter the cells and put their DNA in the nucleus, and it is ready for transcription because it is double-stranded, it is chromatinized. You know, other viral DNAs, when they get in the nu nucleus, they're immediately coated in chromatin and chromatinized so that they look like this. And that can actually silence them. So many genomes need to code antagonists of, of histone-mediated silencing, which we'll talk about later. So that DNA can be transcribed, and there's a messenger RNA made. And then, of course, the mRNA has to go out in the cytoplasm, and you can make proteins there. Memories of no use in the nucleus. Can't make proteins in the nucleus. But if you need, if the proteins have a function in the nucleus, like many today will talk about, the protein it goes back in by virtue of a nuclear uh, localization message. Now, someone has asked me, um, are, are these the same histones as the host? Yes. These are host histones that are uh, put onto the DNA as it's replicating in the cell. So that this one is ready for transcription, but not all of the DNAs are. Some of them have to be converted to templates for transcription as soon as they get into cell. Because remember, first thing you have to do is make at least one protein. And so here the hepatinovirus genome is gapped and... It has a protein, it has an RNA on it, covalently linked, it has a protein on. You'll, you'll find out why when we talk about reverse transcription. This is a product of that process. And so it has to be repaired. And so it goes in the nucleus. It's sensed as, as being broken, as being uh, needing repair by nuclear systems, and it's repaired. We don't consider that replication. We, we consider that repair. So, you know, it's... You know, technically, it's the first thing that happens to this molecule, but I, I would say it's not, I wouldn't call it biosynthetic. It's simply a repair. Uh, then we have the single-stranded parvoviruses. Single-strand can't be transcribed. Again, the cell recognizes this as damaged. It fills in the gap. It's not genome replication. That happens later, and um, we'll talk about that on Monday. But this is repair. Uh, and then, of course, the retroviruses, their RNA genomes, plus-stranded RNA, they are copied into double-stranded DNA uh, in the cytosol. And then this goes into the nucleus. It integrates, and now it's a transcription template. So all of these three have to be fixed or converted to templates for transcription. But when I say the first biosynthetic event, what I'm referring to is mRNA synthesis, not repair. A biosynthetic event in, in terms of the overall reproduction of the virus. So which genomes do not need conversion? Well... Uh, the double-stranded DNA viruses, like the polyomaviruses that I've just shown you, and the papillomaviruses, um, 
you know, closely related viruses to polyomaviruses, which cause warts in people and cancers, which we'll talk about later. And then, of course, adenoviruses and herpes simplex viruses. And there are many more. The, the giant viruses all have double-stranded DNA that's ready to go, pox viruses, and, and many others. So those right there, right up, upstream of mRNA, they don't need to be converted. But class 7 and class 2 uh, certainly have to be. And, of course, the retroviruses, class 6. Our cells, of course, make messenger RNA. That is done uh, by, a specific, by a specific protein. And in fact, our cells have uh, three different kinds of DNA-dependent RNA polymerases that make uh, not only messenger RNA, but other kinds. And here they are, RNA polymerase 1, 2, and 3. And Paul 1 makes the precursor to ribosomal RNA in our cell. As far as we know, there's no... Paul one transcripts of, of viral DNAs, but then we have Paul two, which is uh, the the workhorse here makes the precursor to mRNA. It makes the primary microRNAs. These are regulatory RNAs. We'll talk about in a bit. Small nuclear RNAs are parts of the spliceosome, and then long non-coding RNAs. You know, we 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 discovered mRNA in the '60s. We thought that was it. But then subsequently, we discovered lots of other RNAs. And viral RNAs are made by RNA Paul 2 uh, Not every virus genome encodes its own RNA polymerase. And they, uh, viral RNAs made by Paul 2 include pre-mRNAs, just like cells, primary microRNAs. The hepatitis delta virus genome is actually copied by this enzyme. This is an unusual one. We're going to talk about this later, near the end of the course. Uh, this is um, an RNA virus that is copied by RNA polymerase. You know, and I said to you last time, no cell enzyme can copy uh, viral RNAs. And that's true except for hepatitis delta virus. That's the one exception. This is copied by Paul 2 And then there's a human herpes virus 8 uh, RNA that's made as well. <clears throat> so someone asked, how does the host cell know which nucleotides to substitute into the parvo genome? Well, we're going to actually talk about that on Monday, but it's, it's got a template there, and it just copies the template, right? And then there's Paul 3 which makes precursors to tRNAs, a ribosomal RNA, another small nuclear RNA. Here's another factoid, which is pretty straightforward. Only DNA viruses that reproduce exclusively in the cytoplasm, like pox viruses and some giant viruses, only those encode an RNA polymerase. And you can probably figure out why, right? Because the RNA polymerase is in the nucleus. All these enzymes here, they're in the nucleus of the cell. So if, you, if the virus is in the cytosol, it can't use that, and so it needs to make its own. By the way, the other important point here is that all of these polymerases initiate synthesis de novo. No primer needed for any of them unlike the RNA-dependent RNA polymerases where some need a primer and some don't. Let's look at this process of transcription, and then we're going to go through some of the steps to understand it better and, and really in the, in the sense of, an RNA, uh, of a DNA virus infection. So here we have, this is the nucleus on the top. It's labeled the cytoplasm and the nuclear membrane with its pores, so things can go in and out. And in, in here is a DNA, a double-stranded DNA, 
this is a viral DNA, let's say, or it could be a cellular DNA, it doesn't really matter. And at a very specific place on the DNA, we have initiation of transcription and capping of the uh, transcript. So here is a nascent mRNA, which means it's in the process of being made. After about 20 or 30 basis of synthesis, a cap is added. And we'll look at exactly what a cap is in a moment. And then you have a pre-mRNA, a precursor to mRNA made. This is not mRNA. mRNA doesn't happen until it's out here in the nucleus. This is a precursor to mRNA. It's polyadenylated. Uh, it is spliced to remove intervening sequences that are called introns. What's left are called exons, right? The introns are taken out. They're shown in pink here. So now you have a capped, spliced, and polyadenylated mRNA, which then can be exported out into the cytosol. So these features, capping, splicing, polyadenylation, they're actually important for export uh, out of the nucleus. We'll, we'll see how that works for some viral RNAs, which aren't spliced, actually. So now out, out in the uh, cytosol, we have... Um, RNAs and, and some viral RNAs are actually exported without being spliced, as I just said. So that's why you have a pink sequence there. And then, of course, they're translated into protein in the cytosol. And these mRNAs don't last forever, right? They have a half-life. Some, some are gone in 20 seconds. Some are gone in a half hour or a couple of hours. Um, it's, you don't need them forever. And that's the cool aspect of the mRNA vaccines you know, those mRNAs in particles are taken up by cells and they go right to the cytoplasm where they're translated and have a half-life. They degrade after a certain amount of time. What controls the half-life uh, are a variety of aspects, including sequences in the three-prime non-coding region of these mRNAs. Now, transcription is highly regulated. It is a great step at which to control gene expression. You know, you've, you've, you've made mRNA and you can make more or less of it depending on what you need. You don't need a lot of mRNA all the time in every tissue in our body, right? You need more in some and less in others. And transcription is a great point at which to regulate it. And in virus-infected cells, it's a great regulate, regulatory step as well. And often, uh, viral gene products will inhibit host transcription by specific ways in order that they, they can have the machinery devoted to their own transcription. So here is a, an example of a, a region of the DNA where we can regulate transcription. So here, uh, the red arrow is always where transcription initiates, and that's called plus one. So that's where the mRNA would begin. And this whole other region is called the transcriptional control region. It, it consists of specific DNA sequences that bind a variety of cell and sometimes viral proteins to regulate transcription. And so we have sequences. And, and on top here are how far these sequences are away from the initiation site. So for within, from within 20 to 35 bases, for example, you have an initiator sequence right around the initiation point, which specifies accurate starts. You have upstream a, a sequence called the Tata box or the Tata sequence, which binds a transcription protein called TF2D very important for transcription. And that constitutes what we call the core promoter. You can often take that and put it in a DNA and get a good amount of transcription without any regulation. And then if you go uh, a few hundred bases upstream, you have other regulatory sequences 
called local regulatory sequences. These all bind transcription proteins and they modulate the efficiency of initiation. And this is called the promoter region. And then even further upstream from 100 to over 10,000 bases upstream, you can have distant regulatory sequences like enhancers or silencers. And the names tell you what they do. Enhancers enhance transcription, silencers repress it, and they do so at a distance. They're position and orientation dependent. All right, so that is the way that transcription is regulated. And all these proteins, there are many, many proteins that are involved here. Um, their synthesis in turn can be stimulated or repressed to in turn stimulate or repress transcription of other genes. Here's some viral DNAs just to give you an example of the amazing complexity that we have. These are three different kinds of promoters. So again, a promoter is the name we're going to call this region of DNA where transcription begins and the surrounding sequences that regulate transcription by virtue of proteins binding to it. So we have here an adenovirus major late promoter. And what, what that means you're going to see in a bit. Down bottom we have an adenovirus early promoter. So there's some temporal regulation here you're going to see. And then we have the SV40 early promoter. And they're all different. Uh, here on the right is the transcription initiation site. You can see the adeno major late. It's got a single initiation site, the sequence that specifies accurate starts at the Tata box. But then we have other sequences, USF, CPF. And these are specific DNA sequences that bind very specific proteins that are involved in transcriptional regulation. And SV40 earlier is more complex. There are three initiation sites. And then here we have a number of SPL binding sites, binding sites for a protein called SPL. And then the adeno early is even more is even different. So these viruses are all very different, and that's because they infect different kinds of cells and tissues, and their regulatory requirements are different. And we'll see how some of these work today. Now, overall view of how Paul two uh, initiates transcription. So that's Paul two. It's a little funny because the L looks like the Roman numerals, but here we have. A piece of DNA, the initiation site there is shown in red. There's in yellow are the upstream regulatory sequences. Uh, and then we have this uh, blob here, which is RNA polymerase 2, big enzyme, that's going to bind this initiation region. But look at all these other proteins called initiation proteins that are needed, you know, including TF2D, the, the, the protein that binds the Tata box, but all these others as well they will facilitate polymerase binding uh, to the promoter. And many of these have specific binding sites in the promoter region. And the first step is to make a what's called a closed initiation complex that can't do much until there's a hydrolysis of ATP that becomes open, and that means it can start transcribing. And now NTPs are added, of course, and the enzyme begins to move uh, down the DNA. And you can see here the nascent RNA uh, is being made. Now, one feature of transcription is that a lot of abortive transcripts are made. So they go 10 or 15 bases and it stops. The enzyme falls off and you have to start again. And it's not clear. What Maybe part of it is because there's no primer to lock the polymerase on. Because as you'll see with DNA replication, we don't have this kind of abortive stuff and it's always a primer involved. But eventually it gets going, and then you make uh, longer RNAs.
And you make a copy of the minus strand, of course, to give you the, the plus mRNA. Now, the enhancers work in, a, in an interesting way. Here's, again, the initiation complex with the polymerase and all the initiation proteins that are needed. An enhancer can be up to 10,000 bases away. And the way that works is to further help position these initiation proteins, the complex, if you will. So here's, here are two enhancer binding proteins that bind this orange sequence. And then they in turn bind here TF2D to position uh, the initiation complex so it's more effective at starting. So that's why these enhance transcription. They make it work better. There can be silencers up here as well that have proteins that bind to them and somehow interfere with uh, initiation. So that's how something that's 10,000 bases away can work. So the DNA obviously has to fold around like that. Uh, I've mentioned a number of proteins that uh, regulate transcription. So far, I've told you about sequence-specific DNA binding proteins, right? The proteins that bind those sequences on the DNA, like SPF and CPSF and so forth. But there are also other transcriptional regulatory molecules called co-activating viral molecules. And, and these, by the way, these DNA binding proteins, they can be viral or host. So, of course, we have tons of them, but viruses can make them and they can substitute for host proteins and modify the transcription so it favors the virus, for example. Co-activating molecules do not bind DNA, but they can modulate transcription. And again, they are, it can be viral and, and host. And some, many of these work by uh, modulating the structure of nucleosomal templates. So you can uh, methylate or acetylate histones, the histone proteins, and that will affect how tight the DNA is wrapped around the histone and that will regulate transcription. So these are co-activating molecules that can either stimulate or inhibit transcription by modulating the activity of nucleosomes. There are others as well, but this is a uh, one that we're going to come back to a, a few more times in this course. Now, these DNA binding proteins that are involved, they have a modular organization that is shown here. They typically have uh, three functional regions. They have a DNA binding region. Right? So this is part of the protein that is optimized for binding DNA. And down here are some protein motifs that are typical, like the zinc finger. If you ever hear a zinc finger protein mentioned, that is usually going to be a DNA binding protein. Also helix turn helix or a basic amino acid sequence. These are all um, characteristics of DNA binding domains. Now then we have a, a part of the protein that allows the protein to dimerize because most of these transcription proteins that bind DNA do so as dimers. And a leucine zipper is a very common dimerization motif. Uh, there's a nuclear localization signal. You need that, right? Because these proteins are made in the cytosol, but they're going to work in the nucleus on DNA for, for many viruses and for our cells, of course. So you need an NLS to get in. And then finally, uh, you have an activation domain which can be acidic or glutamine-rich, proline-rich, isoleucine. And this is the part that's going to interact with the transcriptional machinery, right? So the DNA binding part is going to tether it to the DNA near the promoter. This is going to interact with the machinery to stimulate or repress uh, transcription. What is the first biosynthetic event that occurs in cells infected with double-stranded DNA viruses? Membrane fusion, transcription, DNA replication, protein synthesis, all of the above. Now, be careful. I was very fussy about this definition, right? 
for a reason, because I, I want you to understand what I mean by a biosynthetic event. And let, here we have a question. Let's look for DNA viruses that have their own polymerase and undergo transcription in the cytoplasm. What protects the genomes from being degraded? Well, they're usually uh, in factories, which are structures that have been set up, which are protected from the environment, from nucleases and so forth getting in. What do we have here? So 80% of you got transcription, which is the first biosynthetic event as I've defined it. Now you may say, well, but isn't repair biosynthetic? Yeah, but I don't want you to think of it that way. The goal of that is to get mRNA synthesis. That's the first biosynthetic event that has to happen to start the infectious cycle. I know that, well, certainly isn't membrane fusion. There's nothing being synthesized there. It's not DNA replication. That can only happen when you make an mRNA for a protein first. And it's not protein synthesis. It is mRNA synthesis. Now, this, this table gives you a nice summary of the ways that transcription occurs in different DNA virus-infected cells from very simple to more complicated. So here we have the origin of the transcriptional components and some examples of viruses here. And all right, so here's a question. Let me do that before we go on. For gap double-stranded DNA is the first biosynthetic event considered to be transcription since DNA repair is not, it's biosynthetic technically DNA repair, right? Because you're putting nucleotides in. But I don't want you to think of it that way. I want you to think of mRNA synthesis as the first event. Okay, that's my little thing you have to put up with um, because the goal of the repair is, is to make a template that's needed for um, mRNA synthesis. So some viruses, retroviruses, uh, colimovirus is, is a virus of cauliflower, right? <laughs> and uh, circoviruses that infect us. Uh, everything comes from the cell. No part of the transcription machinery is viral. Uh, then uh, we have a number of examples of uh, host plus one viral protein. All right, and there's two separate categories there. One, the viral protein transcribes the late genes. And here we have uh, bacteriophages like T3 and T7. And then we have another example of a single viral protein. One viral protein uh, regulates transcription. And these are many of the viruses we're going to talk about today. Hepatina parvo, papilloma, polyoma, uh, retroviruses with complex genomes. Uh, and then you have host plus more than one viral protein that stimulate transcription. Adeno and herpes, we're going to talk about those today. And finally, all viral. The transcription machinery is all viral. It's not host plus one or more than one. It's all viral. Mimi viruses, giant viruses, and pox viruses. So is a big gradient here in terms of what is needed and what's used from host only all the way to virus only. Now you have to, one, a key point here that you have to understand, which I wrote down here, recognition of viral promoters. What does that mean? Well, if you have a virus like a circovirus, which is doesn't have any viral components of the transcriptional machinery, by definition, its promoters have to be recognized by the host machinery. And, and you may say, isn't that the way it works? No, actually not. Some virus promoters are not recognized by the host machinery, and they, those viruses have to encode a protein that will allow that recognition, and we'll see an example of that. So obviously, down if you go to all viral components, it doesn't matter. The, pro, the promoters only need to be recognized by the viral system. It doesn't matter if the host will 
recognize it because Mimi's and, and Buck's are in the cytoplasm. They're never going to get near the host transcriptional apparatus. Now let's talk about regulation of transcription by viral proteins. Now we're going to consider uh, different viral transcription programs. Very cool stuff goes on. And they fall into one of two general categories that are shown here. And one is cascade regulation. And this sounds exactly what you think it might be. You make one thing and it affects something downstream. So here we have a viral DNA and there are two genes, X and Y, encoded. And they each have their own promoters. And when this DNA gets in the nucleus, the first thing that happens is if it's ready to be transcribed, you make an mRNA for gene X and then you make protein X. And then protein X is required for transcription of gene Y. Gene Y is not transcribed until protein X is made. And then once it's made, then it, it obviously interacts some way at the promoter and allows transcription of gene Y. And then you get gene Y, gene, uh, mRNA and proteins made. So that's cascade because you need X to make Y. We'll see a number of examples of that. And we'll also talk about why you would need that. What's the function of that having a cascade? Uh, why not have all, everything made at once? And then the other part of regulation is what we call positive autoregulatory loops. And this could be also a negative loop, but I'm illustrating a positive one. And this is where we have gene X being transcribed and its gene product X stimulates its own promoter, positive autoregulatory. So with, with the protein now, you make many more transcripts can also inhibit. It may be that you want to turn off a gene at a certain part of the re reproduction cycle and the protein or another protein can turn it off in a similar way, positive, auto-regulatory, negative or positive. So let's take a look at these concepts in terms of some virus reproduction cycles. Now we're gonna, these are all DNA viruses we're gonna talk about. And the first one is SV40 with a small, about 5,000 base pairs of double-stranded DNA in a circle. Here at, in this uh, DNA, there's what we call an origin of replication, an ORI, that's where DNA synthesis uh, begins, and we'll talk about that next time. Uh, but it, it turns out that the origin is also the site of the promoter, the early and the late promoter for synthesis of mRNAs. So here is now a timeline of infection. You infect cells with SV40, and from left to right, the infection is proceeding. And when the viral DNA gets in the nucleus, the first mRNA that's made, it's, an, it's made from the early promoter. The late promoter is silent initially, and we'll see why in a moment. Early promoter is made, that's what E stands for, uh, sorry, is active, and you get synthesis of eventually a protein called large T antigen, LT. And the, so the early uh, promoter makes the mRNA encoding large T. A large T in turn is needed for activation of the late promoter. That will not happen unless large T is made. Uh, and when that happens, viral DNA synthesis begins and the late promoter is activated. So large T is actually needed for viral DNA synthesis. It binds to the origin of replication. It starts DNA synthesis and then DNA synthesis activates the late promoter in a process called anti-repression, which I'll show you how it works in a moment. So you make LT first, 
LT stimulates DNA synthesis. And then as soon as DNA synthesis begins, you enter the late phase. So we have two phases, early and late. So the late phase is defined by the onset of DNA synthesis. And once DNA synthesis begins, the late promoter is activated. And that promoter transcribes mRNAs for the structural proteins to make new virus particles. And I think you can see what's happening here. You make protein first that allows you to replicate the DNA. And only after the DNA has been replicated, do you make structural proteins. There's no point in making structural proteins initially, right? Because there's no DNA to package. That would be a waste. So let's talk about this late promoter. When the viral DNA gets in the cell, the late promoter is inactive. So on the left is a graph that illustrates that experimentally. So we're looking at concentration of different things, genomes, late RNA, and a key protein called initiator binding protein, which is a cell protein. IBP is a cell protein. And we're looking at time after infection. So you see, uh, this is the input genome. And then after, after enough T antigen is made, you start to get DNA replication. Once it reaches an, a certain point right there, you start to get late RNA made from the late promoter. That's the green line. And the late RNA encodes capsid proteins. So then you can build, you got DNA, you have capsid proteins, you can build new virus particles. How does this work? So when the DNA first comes in, the, um, the late promoters are covered with initiator binding protein, these, these yellow spheres. Uh, they bind to the late promoter and they inhibit its transcription. So here's the late promoter, this red arrow going to the right here. It is inactive because the DNA is bound by initiator binding protein. It's a cell protein that binds sequences in the region of the late promoter and represses transcription. Uh, then as you make more T antigen, you start to rep reproduce the DNA, replicate the DNA. Here we have now one, two, three, four, five. And as we make more and more DNA, we titrate out the level of IBP because there is only a fixed amount of IBP in the cell. So eventually you make genomes that have no IBP bound if you make enough DNA. And now the late promoter becomes active. Isn't that brilliant? Well, it's not brilliant, I guess. It just evolved that way. But it's a, it's a beautiful strategy for making sure the late promoter, which encodes uh, the gene, which is mRNAs, it's going to make mRNAs encoding the capsid proteins, isn't made until you have DNA to package in the capsids. So the late the question is, the late promoter is inactive by virtue of a host cell protein in addition to LT? Yes, yeah, so the, uh, the late promoter is bound by this IBP, so it's not active. And it won't become active until large T induces enough DNA replication. So you need both large T and getting rid of LBP to activate the late promoter. So overall, let's take a summary of this before we move on to another virus. The virus gets into the cell. The DNA goes in the nucleus. And the early mRNA is made from the early promoter. That goes out in the cytoplasm. You make large T antigen, which goes back in the nucleus. And now that can stimulate the replication of the DNA. So that you, that's shown here in step nine. And once DNA replication starts and you have enough DNA copies to titrate out uh, IBP, then you can get late protein transcription, which is down here in step 10. Uh, and that mRNA goes out in the cytosol and encodes the capsid proteins. Those proteins have to go back in the nucleus because the virus is going to be assembled in the nucleus 
you take the newly made DNAs, the captured proteins, you make new particles, they get out of the nucleus and eventually out of the cell. So this is a simple example of a temporal regulation, eight, early and late. And what's the function of early and late phases? To delay the synthesis of structural proteins until DNA has been replicated. Uh, if you make, you can modify genomes to get rid of this temporal regulation very easily. And what you do is you make captured proteins early and they're empty. And you make lots of empty capsules and you can't get the DNA in it when it's finally made later. So that's a waste. Does large T have to kick off LBP? No. Large T stimulates DNA replication by binding to the origin. And as soon as you, the DNA molecules, there are too many for the amount of IBP in the cell. They titrate out the IBP. You know, you have 10 molecules, just for a simplistic example, you have 10 molecules of IBP and you, you come in with one genome. And once you get over 10, 100 molecules of DNA, now there's, that many of them are not going to be bound by IBP and the late promoter will be active. So this gives you an idea of early and late phase functions. It's really always to make proteins when you need them and not before. And let's look at a more complicated example. We're going to look at adenovirus, where we have three phases, immediate, early, early, and late. And this, uh, it, it just gives it a little more nuance in the control. Uh, the viral DNA gets in. Here's our timeline again. And the promoter that's active upon entry of DNA is the immediate early promoter, which results in the synthesis of immediate early proteins, including E1A. E1A is necessary for transcription of the early genes. And we're going to see the mechanism for that in a moment. It's really amazingly clever. The early genes encode all the proteins you need for making DNA. So those get made, they start DNA synthesis, which is this purple bar here. Uh, then you can enter the late phase. It's always, the late phase is always defined by making DNA. And you have late promoters activated as a consequence. Similar mechanisms to SV40, uh, anti-repression and so forth. Uh, you make the late mRNAs, which encode structural proteins. So it just has an extra step. It has immediate early. Uh, it's a more complex genome, needs a little more regulation. We have this immediate early protein E1A being critical for getting started. So let's take a look at E1A. This is brilliant and it's going to haunt us later on when we talk about how viruses cause cancer. So the, the I think I showed you here, E1A is necessary for transcription of the early genes because it frees E2F. E2F is a cellular, a set of or I should say a family of cellular transcription proteins that are required uh, for, for transcription of the early genes. And in fact, what E1A does is to free those up because normally they're bound up in the cell. So here are the E2F transcription proteins that adenovirus DNA requires to make early genes, right? To transcribe early genes. Uh, normally in the cell, they're complex with a protein called RB, retinoblastoma. Yeah, it's it's the loss of this gene makes eye tumors in kids. We're going to see how that works later on. So normally uh, E2F is is it's complex with another protein DP1, but it's also complex with RB in this cell. And when E2F binds promoters, the promoters are inactive because RB recruits histone deacetylases to the promoter region, HDACs. HDACs remove acetyl groups from histones. 
Uh, here's, here's an example of histones you know, with the, the protein and the DNA is wrapped around it. And the, the histones are acetylated, right? a chemical modification. When you remove those acetyl by histone deacetylases, the chromatin closes and it can't be transcribed. So we call it closed and open chromatin or relaxed chromatin. So these HDACs uh, reduce transcription. It's one of the many ways that you can modulate transcription by, by uh, affecting the mod mo modification state of histones. So the RB recruits HDACs and that tightens up the DNA in the promoter region. So the transcription is shut off. And um, you know this would apply to uh, adenovirus Early genes that need E2F would be shut off. So that is why the first protein adenovirus makes is E1A because E1A binds RB and it pulls it off of the promoters so that E2F can now work. Isn't that, is that just so cool? Or am I just crazy? <laughs> I think this is amazing. And um, this is going to come back to haunt us, as you will see when we talk about cellular transformation. So that's what E1A is for. So here's an, a look at uh, an overview of the adenovirus transcription units. We have a, a double-stranded DNA of like uh, 34 or 35,000 base pairs. And, and now, this is cool because some of the vaccines use an adenovirus vector, right? Chadox1, which is by uh, Oxford, AstraZeneca. Then we have the J&J &J adenovirus 26 vaccine. And we're going to see later on how you can modify these genomes to put spike in it. It's very cool. But here's the double-stranded DNA. Here we have at the left end the early, early promoter, the immediate early promoter, sorry, from which you get E1A and E1B made. And I just told you what E1B does, freeze up E2F, so that now you can get the early region transcribed. That promoter is actually on the bottom strand here. Here's the E2 region. And that includes the DNA binding protein and the DNA polymerase and a primer, all these things you need for DNA replication. And then once DNA replication starts, you activate the late promoter, which is called the major late promoter here, ML. Huge transcript that encodes many proteins. And you can see penton base, core proteins, hexon. These are structural proteins to make virus particles. So late is when you make the virus particles because you've got DNA replicated by then because, you know, the E2, the early region genes encode the DNA synthetic apparatus. So here's the overview. Now we have three phases, really. The virus, remember, we talked about how it docks on the nuclear pore and then the DNA gets in the nucleus. So immediate early transcription occurs. The promoter is recognized by the cell machinery. You make immediate early mRNAs, which encode E1A, which goes back in the nucleus, frees up E2F and allows the early genes to be transcribed, which you can now see here. They go out into the cytosol. They make uh, polymerase components, polymerase DNA binding protein. They go back in the nucleus. They reproduce the viral genome, right? Make more of it. And that reproduction activates the late promoters. So now you have transcription of the major late promoter, which encodes structural proteins, which again have to go back in to build new virus particles. It is a, just a gorgeous dance. It's a beautifully orchestrated dance. It's E1B that frees up. Uh, did I say E1? Let's take a look. E1A, sorry. But you get the point. It's an E1 protein. And what's pre-TP? Pre-TP is pre-terminal protein, which is the primer for DNA replication. And we'll talk about that next time. So three phases, immediate, early, early, and late. And again, the phasing is to get 
the DNA and proteins made at the same time. Herpes virus is the last one we'll consider. It's just the most complicated one. Uh, here you have, again, three phases, immediate, early, early, and late. But a twist is quite interesting in that the immediate early promoter, so an E1, an adenovirus E1 promoter, can be recognized by the cellular machinery, right? Not so for herpes virus. The immediate early promoter is poorly recognized by host cell machinery. So what happens is amazing. The virus particle has within it a protein called VP16. It's packaged in the particle and it gets into the nucleus and it allows the immediate early promoter to be recognized by the host cell transcriptional machinery. I think that's very cool. So VP16 is a virion-associated protein, right? That means it's in the particle. It's different from polyomavirus and adeno because in those cases, the promoter, the immediate early promoter is recognized by the host cell machinery. Here in herpes, it is not. So then you get the transcription of the immediate early gene whose products, and there's more than one, are needed for transcription of the early genes. And the early genes, of course, encode the DNA replication machinery. And as soon as DNA synthesis begins, you uh, relieve repression of late promoters and you have the late mRNAs made, which encode structural proteins. And again, this kind of regulation ensures coordinated production of DNA genomes and structural proteins. Now, the function of having a more complicated scenario where this immediate early promoter doesn't work unless you bring in a virion protein, not clear to me why that would be more advantageous compared with the adenovirus, polyomavirus scenario, but it all works. These viruses are all quite successful. It's just another solution to a problem. And so here is the overview of the herpes virus transcriptional program. The virus fuses, the virus membrane fuses at the plasma membrane and the capsid alone, the nucleocapsid alone, travels on microtubules, docks on the nuclear pore, that portal docks on the pore. So the viral DNA then shoots into the nucleus. It, it is linear in the capsid, becomes circularized in the nucleus, and we'll talk about that. Monday, these little dots here coming out of the capsid, VP16, they have a nuclear localization signal. They're released upon fusion. They get into the nucleus and they can activate the immediate early promoter. You get immediate early transcripts, which include proteins needed for early mRNA synthesis, which then go out and encode the components of the DNA replication apparatus. The DNA is replicated and the replication alleviates the repression of the late promoter. So now the late mRNAs are made and they encode capsid proteins, which go back in the nucleus, you make a capsid and you put the DNA in it. And we'll talk about the maturation later. So again, this common theme is delaying structural proteins until you need them. Adenovirus E1A protein stimulating expression of adenovirus E2 protein, which then stimulates expression of 4A2 and L4 is an example of negative autoregulatory loop repression of gene expression. Cascade regulation or dimerization. While we're taking this, I wanted to show you my um, my herpes virus keychain in the wild here. Remember, I showed it to you on a slide a couple of weeks ago, and then you could see the core inside, <laughs> and there's a portal right at the top, and this thing opens up so that you can see the uh, the DNA inside that little coiled up thing. All right, what do we have here? 
We're stuck at 37, but 92% of you got cascade regulation, which is right. You know, one protein stimulating the expression of another is cascade regulation. It's not negative. It's not repression. It's not dimerization. It's cascade regulation. Let's look a little bit about at the structure of mRNAs uh, because this will come back. Someone is asking, uh, all right, let me get these questions. By titrating at IBP, do you mean there's a point in which there's enough new DNA which does not have IBP bound to it that allows those new DNA strands to initiate late transcription phase? Exactly. That's exactly right. What's the function of herpes to produce concatomeric DNA? It's to replicate the genome. And again, it's another way of replicating. You can, as we'll see on Monday, you can replicate linear DNAs or you can make a circle and, and do it that way and make concatomers. They all work. And I can't tell you why one would be better than the other. So here is the mRNA. We've talked about this process of transcription and splicing and polydentylation and capping. Here's what a cap looks like, which I diagram in all these as a little blue box. Yeah, that's the cap with the red, the red arrow. So here it is chemically on the right. So there's base one and base two of the RNA. And the cap is stuck on by a five prime, five prime linkage. It's got three phosphates between this base and the first base of the RNA. So that's the capping base. Five prime, five prime linkage, which is in contrast to the linkage between all the other bases, which is a single phosphate and goes five to three prime, of course. So this is unusual. And this cap is important for stability of messages, translation, export, and so forth. So that's one aspect of RNA modification. The, the cap is added co-transcriptionally after the polymerase has gone 20 or 30 bases, the cap is added. At the other end is polyadenylation. I want to tell you how this works. So we have transcripts being made in the nucleus pre-mRNA. There's a signal in the DNA, it's a poly-A addition site, A-A-U-A-A-A, which is recognized by a cell protein, which then will cleave the DNA, the RNA. So the message actually goes past the polyadenylation site. And then it's cleaved. And in these series of reactions, essentially what's happening here is poly-A is then added to, to the three prime end and you end up with a lot of poly-A sequences on the mRNA. So it starts with recognition of this site by a nuclease cutting and then addition of A residues by a poly-A polymerase. So it's added post-transcriptionally, about 200 A's are added. I wanna just summarize all the different ways we've talked about by which poly-A is added to our mRNAs. Last time we talked of some as well. So this one that I've told you is post-transcriptional. It's cleavage of pre-mRNA followed by polyadenylation. Now the enzymes that do that are cellular, adenoviruses, et cetera, all are polyadenylated that way. Uh, but during mRNA synthesis, this was from last time, we talked about the RNA viruses uh, you know, reiterative copying at stretches of U, influenza virus and VSV. We talked about that as a mechanism. Or copying of a long U in the template. Poliovirus, the poly-A is copied to poly-U, which is copied back to poly-A. So three distinct mechanisms. One post-transcriptional, the others during mRNA synthesis. The other processing that happens during transcription is splicing. And this was discovered originally in adenovirus-infected cells where they, they, they knew, they found that um, the RNAs, the pre-mRNAs made in the nucleus were always longer than the final mRNAs in the cytoplasm. And so they, a number of groups, uh, Richard Roberts, 
and Phil Sharp, separate groups, Roberts at Cold Spring Harbor and Phil Sharp at MIT. They did an experiment where they took the final mRNA in the cytoplasm, the adenovirus mRNA, and this was encoding for the hexon protein. And they could purify lots of this from virus-infected cells, and they could purify viral DNA, and they, they made it single-stranded, and they hybridized the two, and they looked at it under the electron microscope. And this is what they saw on the right here. And the interpretation of that is drawn here by me on the left. So the, the mRNA is green, and you can see the DNA is blue, and it's hybridizing to the mRNA, but there are big sequences of DNA that are not in the final message. And that's where splicing was discovered, that these are removed from the pre-mRNA, uh, and these two got the Nobel Prize for that. This particular gene, the, the hexon mRNA body, is right down here. Uh, and then A, B, and C, blue, orange, and red, are the loops that are removed. These are the introns that are removed by splicing. So this has since been found in many, many cellular and viral uh, genes, of course, and um, very well studied. We now know that you can get varieties of gene expressions by splicing because you can have constitutive and alternative splicing. For example, you have here an, a pre-mRNA with two introns. You could remove both of them and get that message, when you take them all out, it's called constitutive. You can get alternative splicing where you splice uh, the end of one to the beginning of three, for example, to get one joint to three. These are the, of course, the exons or the coding regions. Or you could get one, two, and three, which be, would be the constitutive part. That's called exon skipping. You can have alternative five prime splice sites. So the way these are done, there's a five prime and a three prime splice site that are joined. Uh, you can have alternative five prime splice sites. You can have alternative three prime. So basically from a single pre-mRNA, you can make a bunch of different mRNAs that could encode for different proteins. It's a way of expanding the coding capacity of a genome. And I show you that for adenovirus because it's really remarkable what you can do. Here is the major late promoter, and this is the pre-mRNA that's made from it. It covers almost the whole genome. It's huge. It goes from uh, that part right there near the promoter all the way almost to the end of the genome. And there are multiple introns you can see in pink. These Ls are different poly-A addition sites, which you could use. And so you could polyadenylate, you could cleave and polyadenylate that precursor to get one, two, three, four, five uh, different transcripts. You still have introns. And then you can do alternative splicing and make all kinds of different mRNAs, as you can see here. So viral proteins, and, and in fact, viral proteins can regulate alternative splicing by mechanisms we don't have time to talk about. But essentially, you can um, make a lot of proteins from one gene and expand coding capacity by this kind of a combination of polyadenylation, cleavage and polyadenylation, and alternative splicing. Which statement about polyadenylation of DNA virus mRNAs is correct? It always occurs in the cytoplasm. It occurs after cleavage of pre-mRNA. Poly A is added to the five prime end of pre-mRNA. It is specified by a stretch of U residues in the template. All right, let's see what we have here. About half of you got the right answer. It occurs after cleavage of pre-mRNA. doesn't always occur in the cytoplasm. 
So DNA virus polyadenylation doesn't always occur in the cytoplasm, right? Some of them do, but many of them are in the nucleus. Poly is added at the five prime end. It's added at the three prime end. It's specified by a stretch of U residues for RNA viruses, but this question says of DNA viruses, so that's not correct. And another important function of splicing, besides giving an expanded coding capacity, is to mark mRNAs for nuclear export. What does that mean? So here is a pre-mRNA in the nucleus that's, that's about to be spliced, and the splicing process involves a number of cell proteins binding to the exons and introns. This self-splicing is actually, uh, doesn't involve any protein-based enzyme. It involves the RNA only. The RNA is autocatalytic, it cleaves itself. It's really a cool uh, feature that is a remnant of the RNA world, actually. You remove the intron, the ends are joined by an autocatalytic reaction. The, the result is you have all these cell proteins on this spliced mRNA, and those are then recognized by components of the nuclear export pathway. Uh, and one of them here is NXT1. But these are recognizing, and NFX1, they're recognizing these cell proteins bound to the mRNA, the spliced mRNA. So if it's not spliced, it's not going to have these proteins on it. It will never get out of the nucleus. So most of our mRNAs are spliced and they get out with no problem. But you need to export some unspliced viral mRNAs under different conditions. For example, retroviral mRNA can be spliced to access different coding regions of the genome, as we'll see in a bit in another lecture. But you also need to export the whole mRNA because that's going to go into virus particles. How do you get it out unspliced? Because if it's not spliced, it's not going to have any of these splicing proteins bound to it. So the nuclear export machinery is not going to recognize it. Well, the RNA has a little sequence at the three prime end, constitutive um, transcription, uh, transport element, and that binds nuclear export machinery. So that gets it out of the nucleus. You don't have to be spliced in this case because you have this sequence. And again, I'm going to compare that to a cellular spliced mRNA where it's bound by proteins and that's what gets it exported. Here, it's not bound by splicing proteins because it's not spliced. So the CTE binds those export proteins. Brilliant. Here's one more example because this is HIV-1. Again, uh, the, the full-length RNA is spliced to give rise to a variety of proteins, but at some point you need to export unspliced RNA to put that into new virus particles. And here, the strategy is slightly different. Uh, one of the splicing products of the genome encodes uh, a protein called REV, which then goes back in the nucleus and it binds a sequence in the three prime end of the viral RNA called the REV responsive element, RRE. And that is then recognized by the export machinery to get it out of the cell. So you can have uh, mRNAs that are not spliced exported by virtue of this uh, RRE binding REV. So in the end, splicing is value added, right? You can create different mRNAs and proteins. You can expand the coding information of a small DNA genome. You can also regulate gene expression by how much splicing you do at different uh, times. Unspoiled. Did I say unspoiled? It's unspliced. <laughs> unspliced viral RNA, not unspoiled. If it's in one of the slides, it's a mistake. Let me see. Now I'm curious. Oh, look at that. Holy cow. That's goddamn spell checking. 
And that's Vincent, not... See? It's suggesting and spoiled. But it's my fault because I didn't pick it up. Thank you for... It might have gone on for who knows how many years. Okay. Uh, there are other RNAs in cells I want to tell you about because <laughs> they have a big role in virus reproduction. These are non-coding RNAs. And, you know, besides uh, tRNAs and ribosomal RNAs, which are non-coding, there's a whole repertoire of non-coding RNAs that we've just discovered. And in fact, most human transcripts don't encode proteins. And they've now been classified into short and long based on their length. They have a variety of regulatory functions. And I'm going to give you some examples of uh, non-coding RNAs and viral genomes that have some functions. And these non-coding RNAs include microRNAs, short 21-base uh, RNAs that are regulatory, long non-coding RNAs. Again, they're over 200 bases and they regulate gene expression, but they don't encode a protein. And even circular RNAs, circ RNAs, they're single-stranded circles. A microRNA has gene regulatory activity, and this is the pathway by which they're made. A <clears throat> primary microRNA is made in the nucleus uh, by Pol2, and then it is processed by enzymes in the nucleus. It's exported uh, and eventually um, becomes a single strand, about 21 bases long, uh, bound to a protein complex, uh, including a protein called Argonaut, AGL. And this RNA is going to be complementary to some mRNA in the cell, and it's going to uh, target it and regulate it. So here we have an mRNA being translated in the cell. And if this microRNA is complementary to some part of it, then this complex is going to bind to the mRNA by virtue of the complementarity of the microRNA. And then uh, this argonaut is actually a nuclease that can degrade the mRNA, or this complex can do translational suppression. It's wrong. Another typo. <laughs> this is actually in the textbook, the new edition. Translational, not transitional, translational. You can turn off specific RNAs in this manner. And we'd use this experimentally. We actually introduce uh, plasmids encoding these short RNAs into cells to target specific gene expression transiently. So we can knock down mRNA and see what happens on whatever function we're looking at. Now, one of these microRNAs, there's a whole bunch of them, and one of them is called MIR-122. MIR stands for microRNA. I, I like it. It sounds Soviet, right? MIR. <laughs> MIR-122 is needed for hepatitis C virus replication. Here's the hepatitis C virus genome, plus stranded RNA genome, coding a polyprotein, and at the 5' prime end, there is a highly structured RNA shown here. And the very 5' prime end in the red box binds two MIR-122s in this fashion. So the RNAs, the, the viral RNA is green and the MIRs are red and black. And this is absolutely required for viral replication. Without MIR-122, the virus will not replicate. And guess what? You only find MIR-122 in the liver. And that's why this is a hepatotropic virus, because it can't replicate anywhere else, because there's no MIR-122 anywhere else. And one of the ways this works is by preventing the RNA from being degraded by nucleases. And with MIR-122 there, that doesn't happen. So this is a liver-specific microRNA. It has a function in the liver. It gets involved in cholesterol metabolism. But the virus has evolved to utilize it in order to reproduce. And if you introduce MIR-122 
into non-liver cell types, you can get the virus to reproduce in them. So it makes them permissive, right, for replication. Uh, and then we have uh, some viruses encode MIRS. So that was a cellular microRNA. Here's a polyomavirus microRNA, which is derived from one of the uh, mRNAs. And the, the MIR is processed, and there they are on the... They can hybridize to uh, early mRNA. So it's a way that the virus can knock down its own early mRNA, because when the mirrors bind, they degrade the uh, mRNA. And some people feel that these uh, mirrors allow the virus to persist longer uh, in the cell. So viral microRNAs can regulate viral gene expression. They can also regulate cellular gene expression. We know viral microRNAs that antagonize immune function in different scenarios. Then there's long non-coding RNAs, and there are many of these in the cell. There are some viral long non-coding RNAs, but they can do all kinds of things to either promote or repress genome replication. So MIR means both world and peace in Russia. So the MIR was the name of the spaceship too, I think, right? So here is, the, is an example of a, MIR, a long, long non-coding RNA encoded by a gene called ACOD1 which is induced by virus infection. Here's uh, Sendai virus and vesicular stomatitis virus. They induce this promoter and it reshapes the metabolic in environment of the cell to promote virus replication. This is it's an amazing uh, effect that we, I think we might talk about later. But the long non-coding RNA can bind to proteins and modulate their activity. Uh, here are some examples where this particular no long non-coding RNA can inhibit Transcription of uh, HIV-1 DNA. So, and then down here, the red, the green arrows are increased viral replication. So not, some non-coding RNAs antagonize immune responses, innate immune responses, particular interferon and interferon-induced genes. So you increase viral replication. And these are cellular LNCs induced by infection that the virus then uh, turns out to suppress the innate immune response. And some LNCs are repressive. They're, they're part of the defense of the cell. They reduce the replication of uh, certain viruses. And this is early days in the study of these. These can do uh, many, many things, both plus and minus effects on virus replication. And then we have circular RNAs. These are made by an interesting process called backsplicing. Right, so normally, if there's an intron uh, in, in a gene, you splice in a five to three prime direction. But here, you go in a three to five prime direction and that gives you a circle. So a circle made of two and three, uh, for example, uh, gets made. Uh, these are very abundant in, in uninfected cells, but also in some virus-infected cells. We think they're sponges. They can, microRNAs can hybridize to them and they can be stored there until they are needed. You know, we can have RNA binding protein sponges as well. So these are RNA binding proteins that are hung up on the circular RNA. And then when they're needed, they can be uh, transferred uh, to the target mRNA, so forth. And finally, another modification that's important is uh, N6-methylation of adenosine nucleosides in RNA. So here's an adenosine. And uh, this N6 can be methylated. Uh, so here's the methyl going on to that nitrogen. And there are a number of enzymes in the cell that can add a methyl group, including these, you know, WTAP and metal, 
metal 3 and 14. And then there are enzymes that take it off. So <laughs> I love the names. The, these are called writers, methyl writers. Then we have a separate set of proteins that are readers. They can read whether there's a methyl or not on the RNA. <laughs> and then we have erasers. These are the, <laughs> the erasers that take the methyl off. And so what does the methylation do? It can affect uh, the activity of the RNA. It could stimulate it or it can stimulate translation. It can repress translation. Here's an example of where um, it is repressing assembly of hepatitis C virus. So hepatitis C virus is a plus-stranded RNA virus, and the particles are assembled on lipid droplets in the cell, which are induced by virus infection. And what happens is the RNA binds to the core protein, which is shown here in blue. It's a viral protein, and that stimulates assembly into a particle. This uh, viral RNA can be methylated on adenosines by metals. So here you now have a, a methyl. And the methyl methylated RNA cannot associate with the core protein on the lipid dropper. So this methylation is basically a defense by the cell to prevent virus assembly. And of course, uh, the um, some proteins can remove. This is actually a reader here. This YTHDF123 is one of these readers. Uh, and they can read the status of that and presumably participate in this activity. So this is one of many uh, new functions for methylations that are that are being discovered. So all, all really remarkable array of RNA activities in a cell. It's not just messenger RNA. So today we have talked about this step, making mRNA from uh, DNA genomes. We've talked about how you do it for DNA genomes that are ready, uh, that are not ready. We've talked about some encoding none of their transcriptional apparatus and some uh, encoding all of it. And so we have set the stage for DNA replication. Remember, because you need one, at least one, and sometimes many proteins in order to get DNA replication. And that is what we will talk about on Monday, how these DNA genomes reproduce. And again, full of surprises, just like today. <music>